They say there's nothing you can do about it. Can't say that I'm new to saw. Wishing I could take your problems, trade them for a little more time, but you can't. Welcome to Justice, episode four, part two. Uh, today we have a phenomenal guest. Her name is Tajiana Okechuku. Hi everyone, what's up? Um, yeah, my name is Tajiana. I am an actress, filmmaker, and activist from the Bay Area. Um, a lot of my work in front and behind the camera revolves around social issues, specifically through the lens of the Black diaspora. Um, and my whole goal with, you know, art is to is to just really, you know, put out works of artivism and have things that strive towards racial reconciliation and, you know, shape culture and shift paradigms in our society. Um, so uh, a lot of the work that I've done um, revolves around that. Um, I have a documentary called Flexing in My Complexion that talks about colorism in the Black community, specifically through the lens of Black women. Um, that is out, um, also a short film that I have out. Um, the, the trailer is out for My Sister's Soul and that short film is gonna be coming soon. And it's about you know Black women and spirituality and them navigating their lives with different hardships. So yeah, a lot of the projects I do are through the lens specifically of Black women because I'm a black woman. <laughs> so yeah, I'm super excited to talk with you today, Josh, and yeah. this is gonna be fun. Yes, that's awesome. Uh, especially uh, getting uh, to see the work that you've been doing with, with film um, and especially uh, seeing uh, how uh, vocal that you have been on social media as well. Um, Emilia thought, man, we got to get Tajiana on here. So, um, and also would very much encourage uh, anyone listening right now to check out Tajiana's um, Instagram as well, as she has so many resources um, and just great things on there uh, to check out. And so uh, that'll also uh, be included in the description for this episode as well. So, um, Tajiana, let's let's. Uh, <laughs> get get right dive into it right in. <laughs> yeah dive dive right in a, a good nice simple question um how uh from your perspective would you personally define justice and um with that uh, why why is justice important to you yeah um i i would say in my personal definition justice is the state of which freedom is achieved and you know, it's important to me because justice means that there's no, there's no error, there's no confusion, and there's a lot of error and confusion going on right now. Um, but with that, it also means that there's reconciliation and there's restoration. Um, you know, for things to be just means for things to be right. So I think, you know, undoing wrongdoings is justice, but also before you even get to wrongdoings, just simply, like I said, not having any state of error or confusion is just, um, and is justice. So, um, it's very important for me. Um, it's one of my favorite words. <laughs> I have yeah. a few friends named justice. So it's wow. great. Cool, cool. Love, love the word. Love it. Um, so yeah. activist for justice um so how do you uh believe how effective do you believe that social media activism is um and to add to that question um do we water down movements like black lives matter uh to a post or or an instagram story yeah yeah and i definitely just want to preface the rest of the conversation with the fact that, you know, as a Black woman, I'm going to speak from specifically the Black experience, I mean, even more specifically, you know, the experiences of Black women. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can obviously apply this conversation to many different, you know, um, sectors throughout, you know, different other people groups, people of color specifically. Um, you can find, you know, the common threads. Um, but speaking from my my experience um, in centering this conversation about, you know, um, Black people and our livelihood and what's going on right now, I definitely think that there's a duality to everything. Um, because on one hand, you have social media activism where people, you know, are only speaking up on Instagram or Twitter. Um, and then on the other hand, you have, 
people who are, you know, actually out in the field, like doing grassroots work, literally on the ground, you know, whether it's protesting or, you know, providing relief to different people groups. Um, and so there's a duality to everything, you know, with Blackout Tuesday that happened reason recently, um, it was an issue because, you know, people, um, I always say that people don't listen to Black women, <laughs> but the, the, the two women, Black women that started the show must be paused, it literally got turned into this whole Blackout Tuesday and post a Black square and don't post anything for the whole day, when in reality, what they said was, we're just asking specifically target audience, music industry professionals and artists um, to not post personal content for the day, but strategize with your teams on how to, you know, dedicate to the movement and how to um, give, you know, monetary relief or whatever, um, you know, publicity, you know, exposure to Black artists. So it got changed into, oh, well, Black Square, okay, Blackout Tuesday. And then you see the hashtag Black Lives Matter is all Black yeah. squares. So all that information, when people are trying to like look at stuff, it's all disappeared. So there is that, you know, that is problematic, but there's also so much education that's being done. There's so many people who are learning information that is not taught to us in school, um, which is huge. It's a very, very serious thing. So I definitely know that I am very active on social media because I know that I can reach, you know, a lot of people there versus me, you know, walking down the street. Um, but it's it's important um and people have been enlightened i've looked at you know comments of people saying wow i didn't know that um you know not only um white people but just black people as well because so so much of our history has been taken away from us so it's been a lot of you know learning and unlearning that has been going on so it's it's awesome um you know there there is failure and there is you know fault but there is a lot, I think, that a lot of education that is being done and a lot that you won't see. So Yeah, yeah. A lot to contribute through yeah. through social media. That's awesome. Yeah. Um so in in even in videos that uh we're we're seeing on on social media, um, there are a lot of calls for change, right? Um and and even a lot of broad statements uh like systemic racism being used. Um, and so, uh, in your own words, can we just take a moment to, to break down uh, what exactly does systemic racism mean? Yeah, systemic racism, uh, basically, in the most simple terms, is it just basically means that racism is threaded through every system that makes up society. So we have, you know, are five main social institutions, right? Which means um, politics, education, you know, economic, the economy, you know, family and religion. And so systemic racism refers to, you know, literal racism that is, it, it's institutional. It's not only interpersonal, it's institutional. It's, you know, racist laws being made and having that, you know, affect um, black people uh, which you're talking about, you know, access to housing, access to healthcare, education, you know, um, in education, you know, if you guys research the school to prison pipeline, you'll see how literally black youth, black and brown youth are more criminalized, which makes it easier for them to be pushed into the prison system. You know, um, black girls very much, you know, over um, overly disciplined, um, harshly disciplined in school, um, which means that you know they're always in the principal's office. They're always being manhandled by security or what have you. Um, you know, you're literally in get in trouble for your hair having out an afro. Oh, it's blocking somebody's vision. You go to the the detention office, or you even get people. You know, people's daughters have been expelled for things oh. like that. Have been suspended from school from getting an education for things as simple as. Um, their hair, which is why it's not just hair, <laughs> because of that. So, you know, there's lots of things. Um, it, it, it's a lot. And so, you know, how do doctors respond to Black patients seeking aid? You know, oh, you're fine. Or, you know, we're not going to give you this med medication because you're just so strong and you can, you know, you can, you can take it. Like, I mean, obviously it's not that, <laughs> 
I mean, I hope that it's not that, you know, that simple of a conversation, but it's definitely those sentiments that are placed in, you know, doctor's visits and things of that sort. Um, so it's, you know, historical and it also has remnants in present day of how, you know, how systemic racism floats through our society and maintains this um, this whirlwind of of a ladder of like you you know ladder of the oppressed like you are on the bottom and we are maintaining power Mm -hmm. so then having provided the idea for systemic racism then um how do we as the the people uh play a role in putting an end uh to systemic racism yeah man it's it's so much, you know, we, you know, I always say that, you know, everybody can't do everything, but everybody can do something. Mm -hmm. And so with that being said, you know, we can always make change on a micro level and a macro level, you know, that looks like having, you know, those, the, the interpersonal effect is having conversations with family, which I know a lot of people are doing right now, especially, you know, amidst the pandemic while it's still active, using this time to have conversations with family and, you know, really challenge their racist ideals and, you know, ways of thinking. Um, your peers who also have the, those very, you know, toxic ways of thinking, you know, I know we all know somebody all went to school with somebody who, you know, is a nursing major and probably <laughs> doesn't have, you know, the most, you know, healthy ways of thinking about others, you know, and those are the types of people who, you know, I just talked about systemic racism um, operating within healthcare. Those are the types of people who become healthcare professionals. So if you don't challenge it from when you're, you know, younger, you get, you're, you're going to enter into that field, perpetuating that system. And so it's really about challenging the people around you so that they don't carry that into their respective fields um, and just making sure that, you know, they're, they're very much aware and educated on what they're saying, the historical effects of things. Um, you know, uh, I always uh, refer back to um, Sankofa, which basically means, you know, you have to know your history to um, inform the, the future. Um, and it's a, it's a, um, it's a word in the tree language of Ghana. And so, I always think about that when, you know, whenever we talk about educating anybody. Um, And also, you know, on a larger level, contacting your state legislators, you know, asking your job, hey, what are our, you know, staffing demographics? You know, what are the statistics in terms of what groups we hire? Um, You know, how many people with disabilities do we hire? How many, you know, um, Black people do we hire? You know, what like how many queer people do we hire? You have to look at, you know, actual demographics. It's not just, you know, like tokenism, like, oh, let's just hire, you know, five black people just because, but like, no, like interviewing them. Are you asking those questions? And like, really, you know, cause it's important <laughs> and yeah. you have to, you know, you have to be aware of that. Um, especially within a company that has an effect on a lot of people, you definitely should challenge, you know, your supervisors, or if you are a supervisor, really take a look at your company and see how you are either contributing to a problem, maybe not even knowing it, or, you know, really examine and see how you can um, progress and move forward and, you know, cater to these people groups who, who are more uh, marginalized. And, and you mentioned also um, in, in putting an end to, to systemic racism and, and having conversations with, with family. Um, and so, uh, I know that in even conversations with my family, uh, that there have been uh, the response, and the general response um, has been when we talk about um, the issues that are happening um, in, in our society today, um, that in saying that Black Lives Matter, uh, there is immediate pushback to saying, no, all lives matter. Mm-hmm. And... So how would you respond or even how have you responded uh, to someone who wants to say or who has said, Taji, all lives matter in response to Black Lives Matter? Yeah, um, it's been a lot of conversations and a lot of, you know, people always send me the screenshots from um, trolls and all lives matter enthusiasts. (laughs) Um, Mm. 
But I, I would say that, you know, I mean, come on, like you're stating the obvious, like the sky is blue, right? Of course, you know, it's, it's all lives matter. Of course, of course, all lives have importance, of course. But the problem is that, you know, black lives are in danger. Um, we are experiencing and have been experiencing a genocide <laughs> um, for many years now. And I think that when you hear Black Lives Matter, if you are under the frame of thinking that all lives do matter, then Black Lives Matter is included in that statement. Um, and to be able to just say that Black Lives Matter shouldn't be an issue because they do, they just matter. Um, not only do Black Lives Matter, not only does my life matter, it's important, you know, um, black, black Lives are necessary, Black Lives are created in God's image, um, and Black Lives are loved. So I think that, you know, um, a lot of things wouldn't be here without Black Lives, um, you know, and so I think that, you know, when you say all lives matter and you're confused and saying that, you know, oh, well, you guys are saying that Black Lives matter only. Nobody said only. The the statement is not BLMO. It's not Black Lives Matter only. It's not, you know, just us alone. It's Black Lives Matter because they just do. And we're experiencing, it's a direct response to the, not only police brutality, but the overall violence and discrimination um, that we have been experiencing in this country for over 400 years. Um, so um, when you say that, you're reducing Black Lives Matter to just, um, just the sentiments of a phrase and not a statement like Black Lives Matter because all these other things, like if you actually examine what's been happening, you should indeed be able to say that. And if you can't say that Black Lives Matter just because they do, that's a real issue and that's very dangerous. Um, and so, you know, not all lives are getting, you know, lynched in 2020 and being ruled as suicides. That's not happening to all lives. So I think that you know, there's, it's a direct response to what is going on um, in our, you know, community and towards our people group. Um, I know a lot of people have used this analogy where they talk about, you know, um, houses being on fire. Um, so, if, or like even talking about, you know, um, cancer, you know, mm. people always, you know, if you say, you know, breast cancer awareness and people be like, oh, well, you know, we need to be talking about all cancers. It's like, yeah, but there's a specific problem. There's a specific group that this is affecting on a large scale, even with, um, you know, the house analogy, like if there are, you know, there's a neighborhood and you have, you know, three houses and one, you know, is not on fire. One has a huge fire. Um, the windows are blown out, you know, the grass is now singed, you know, and then the other house is just like, ah, eh, there's, there's some small flames. Like, which house are you going to attend to first? Like, I would hope that, you know, the fire department comes and puts out, you know, puts water on the house that is like blowing up. So, um, you know, we, we don't say, you know, like even um, on 9-11, we don't say that um, that phrase, you know, we don't say that on specific um, events that, you know all cancers matter or like all, you know, when people are targeting specific things, like, you know, all, all, um, crisis attacks matter. Like it's just very ignorant and like, duh, of course, we're just bringing attention to this specific thing. So I yeah. think once people are able to understand that, then that's when they can actually, um, do the work. Yes. And a thought just, just came to mind, um, that, uh, I, I just saw this the other day where uh, someone had made a comment that they don't want that they, they didn't want to say Black Lives Matter because they didn't want to associate themselves with what they said was quote unquote a a violent group a violent of movement and so they said that um, instead of saying Black Lives Matter that they instead wanted to say Black people matter to not associate themselves uh, with said quote-unquote a violent group uh what what are your thoughts um on mm -hmm. uh on that um and in a perspective and in, in saying black people matter versus black lives our lives not referring to people <laughs> mm. i guess it's like you know i mean i i understand um the the sentiments i think it can be unfortunate though that um the you know i guess the violent um 
you know, acts are overshadowing the overall movement in some people's opinion. But if you feel that way, then you were never going to be on board if you think that people smashing up, you know, inanimate <laughs> objects is is messing up the whole purpose and vision of us saying that we are in danger and that we need justice, then you were lost to begin with, um, I feel like. And so, you know, I think that people are often misled and think that, you know, a few people who are doing you know, certain things are kind of like over, overriding. Um, and I think people often forget that, you know, Black Lives Matter is uh, an actual, you know, not only is it just like a, a movement, mm. it's an actual organization mm. uh, founded by three Black women. Um, and, you know, as a response to, you know, the murders um, and, and specifically because it was birthed out of police brutality, um, we talk about that a lot, um, but it's, you know, overall, you know, anti-racist advocacy. It's, you know, dedicated to, you know, just really like <laughs> responding to these acts of um, police brutality. And so I think when people actually go to the website, actually look at organizers and see what the mission is, see what the purpose is of us, you know, talking about this, um, you know, because if you're aware, it's a direct response um, founded in 2013 as a response to, um, you know, the death of Trayvon Martin um, and um, the acquittal of George Zimmerman. Um, and I think that, you know, once people understand that it's not coming out of nowhere and that, you know, things are, are in place for a reason. Um, and so, you know, and yeah, Black people matter and Black people's lives matter. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. just keep saying it because it's like you know, if you're letting that overshadow your frame of thinking, then it's kind of just like, well, why does that need to be said um, for you to understand that? Um, and you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, overall um, is is not um, violent. Um, if you look at the um, if you look at the organizers, um, and yes, in recent events. Um, because we are in an uprising this year due to the death of George Floyd, um, there are people who are angry and upset and are, you know, um, whether it's burning property or, you know, whatever. Um, that is a, a direct response to the pent up anger um, of not, you know, having a system change. Um, so I think you really have to look at why you know, why are you focusing on a, a minimal aspect of the overall message in terms of why people are um, upset? You know, I think, you know, if everybody had, you know, their dad <laughs> due to police violence, then it would be like, okay, you know, and then like not, you know, get get the justice that they deserve or get it fast enough or the, just the fact that it even happened. Like it's a huge issue. So I think you really have to look at, you know, why people, um, you know, burning property, why things that can be replaced, you know, the CNN sign was repainted over and whatever the next day after the protest. Um, that's not the point, um, you know, and th these things get people's attention. You know, the only way that we've ever, you know, went anywhere as a country is specific groups of people in each generation disobeying the law. <laughs> because if laws are not put in place to protect you, you you inherently are going to have to go against um, the law and you're going to be seen as an unlawful person if it's set against you. And that's what has to happen. You know, we've only gotten anything, you know, women's rights, you know, voting rights, anything due to civil disobedience, due to, to sit-ins, to protests, you know, um, and, you know, anger and people trying to, you know, figure out how they want to say things as a part of that. So I think once you understand the overall picture, um, hopefully you'll be able to understand where we're trying to go um, and what type of world we're trying to shape for our people. I'm glad you brought up uh, the, the statement, you know, where, where we want to go. Um, and so that leads right into the next question of we have the protest and the nation is in a state of restlessness. So what would you tangibly like to see uh, happen out of everything that is going on right now um, so that we don't have to have uh, 
these same protests happen again in in 10 years, 20 years from now? Yeah, Josh. Um, man, I want to see a lot of things, <laughs> but okay. I think baseline, like I want my people to be free. And when I say free, I mean um, free as not only like, you know, literal like laws and like obviously systemic change, but wanting to be free in existence, free in mindset. Um, um, you know, I even, I babysat for a, a couple. Um, the mom is, is black. Um, she's from here, from the States. And um, the dad is from Kenya and they have a son. And we were having a conversation one time and she was like, you know, I think we're going to move back. Um, we're going to move to Africa. Um, I think probably specifically Kenya, but I, I want to move uh, back to the motherland so that when I raise my son, his blackness is not, you know, a surprise. It's not an epiphany. It's just normal. Like he'll grow up seeing lawyers and doctors um, in his place of living. Um, and it won't be a, oh my gosh, you know, like here, it's like the first black lawyer, the first black, you know, because we, our blackness is not normalized. So everything we do is, you know, a loud statement because it's like us coming into a new, you know, um, every time we, we break down a barrier, it's, it's, you know, laying new ground in this country. So I think that, you know, there's something there with having, you know, just blackness be normal. I mean, not always having to be, you know, when all eyes are on me in a room, I know it's because of like what I look like and also because of what I represent. So, you know, I want to see freedom. I want to see, you know, and with that, specifically talking about police brutality, that means, you know, the abolishment of the police system. And that means, you know, abolishment of the prison system as we know it. Um, and, you know, going, going into, you know, just like what I tangibly want to see is I want to be, be able to literally see, you know, my, you know, sisters, like I want us to be able to, you know, not have to be like, Hey, like everybody got their pepper spray, <laughs> like not have to be like, Oh, you know, it's getting late. We have to be in a constant state of fear and a constant state of awareness um, to be able to truly be free. And, you know, that's a very, very um radical idea to just be able to walk around and not have to worry about anything right but i think you know being able to see you know black queer people um not you know harassed being able to literally see black people with disabilities not look you know not looked at in a certain way that's like weird or like oh like you know they're in a wheelchair like <laughs> for people to just be normal and for everybody's you know livelihood to be acknowledged and accepted I want to tap into uh, what you said, um, because you said a few trigger words actually right there that that might be, you know, uh, that might interest some people. Uh, you said specifically uh, abolish the police system, I believe, and then abolish our prison system. Um, would you mind uh, just tapping into that real quick and clarifying um, what exactly does abolishing the police and prison system look like? Yeah, um, it sounds so, you know, so drastic because it's always we've ever known, <laughs> um, at least, you know, for our, our um, generations. But I think that, you know, abolishing the police is a system of or a gradual movement of, you know, re reallocating funds defunding the police and reallocating those funds into the community so that we can, you know, basically see a, a new utopia of um, people being cared for um, without having to resort to individuals who are armed with weapons. Same thing for, you know, the prison indu industrial complex, um, literally having, you know, a different system than throwing people in, you know, a two centimeter long room with bars, um, um, as a way of like, I don't know, punishing them, yeah, for what they did, but also like, there's no rehabilitation, you know, there's literally like, you know, if you guys, you know, learn about prison labor, literally, a lot of what we have, um, whether that's the clothes on our backs, or, you know, things of that sort, a lot of companies use prison labor um, mm -hmm. to produce their products. 
And it's wow. unfortunate because, you know, um, people in prison are paid, you know, I think in California, the highest is like 95 cents an hour. And for one phone call, you know, that they can charge you whatever they want. You know, they can charge you $15 for a phone call home um, that you were waiting in line for for a while. Um, and so who knows, you know, how long it took you to work um, to get that $15 and then like, you know, um, be able to have a two minute phone call. It's a very, very broken system. It's very unfair. So I think, you know, when we talk about abolishment, it's not, you know, it's not just some cute phrase like, oh yeah, abolish the police, get rid of them. It's like, no, it's a, it's a, it's a process of taking those funds, reinvesting it into the community. Um, you know, hiring social workers, hiring mental health care professionals, hiring EMTs to take care of these situations on the ground um, without resulting to, you know, police. Um, and, you know, a lot of people talk about reform and, you know, we need to invest more de-escalation training. I'm like, you know, the officer who just shot and killed Richard Brooks had de-escalation training nine months prior. Like the system is not, is not um, working. And I think, you know, you don't go to the store and, you know, you see that hair dryer that you bought three months ago and it didn't work out. And you're like, this thing is jank. It's broken. <laughs> like, it's not, you don't go back to the store and buy it again. So I think, you know, it's ridiculous that, you know, a lot of city budgets have a, have designated at least half, if not more to their police departments, mm -hmm. um, which is absolutely ridiculous. If you look at your city's, you know, graph or um, pie chart of how many zeros are dedicated to the police department. Um, and that includes, you know, um, them aiding policing in schools as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really just being smart and, you know, it's, it's basically like what you see in white affluent neighborhoods. Like, you know, they don't have a whole bunch of police, um, running around. Um, it's, it's not hard to imagine because we already have neighborhoods that are not heavily policed. I wonder why that is. Um, so, you know, it's very, um, it, it's, it sounds very like, I guess, overly radical to some people, but it's actually very simple. Um, and we have the resources to do it. Um, and I think that once we do our research and see how our numbers, you know, are, see the numbers and how things are being, you know, how funds are being allocated for what, then we can really, you know, email, you know, your, your governor, email people, like yeah. call people to really challenge them to say, Hey, I am, you know, a resident of this city and I would like to see these funds taken out of the police department and put into here. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, homelessness. You're from Southern California. I'm from the Bay Area. We have, you know, two, our regions have like high, you know, highly populated um, levels of um, homelessness. And I think, you know, it's always like, oh, well, you know, we don't have enough money, you know? <laughs> We don't have enough money, but where we do, um, but where is it going? So yeah, yeah. I definitely, you know, you really got to look at that. Like, you know, if you have a family and the husband's like, hey, yeah, so all, half of our income or 75% of our income, yeah, we need to spend that on arming ourselves for protection. And your wife's going to be like, dude, what about our healthcare? What about, you know, your kids are going to be like, daddy, I need food for, for, for lunch at school. Like it's... <laughs> It's literally so insane. So when we talk about abolishing the police, it's really just um, getting rid of everything as, we, as we've known it and reconstructing that into something new. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the gist of it. I could really go on, but I recommend you know, reading the work of abolitionists who have already been doing this work generations prior. Um, they've already you know, researched and done the work. So I think once we just continue to educate ourselves on what, you know, what abolition means and what it would look like, then we can actually start to practically envision that for ourselves. Yeah. And with what you said, I think this is also a great way to encourage um, that if you're listening in right now, um, this is even, uh, uh, I don't want to call it a challenge. Challenge is a bad word, uh, but just encouragement. Uh, go online and research what is uh, your city's budget and where is all that money going to? Mm -hmm. You have a right to know as a resident, you have a right to know and you have a right to demand exactly. that it look differently. And yeah. a lot of people have personal testimonies that can count against, you know, how they've structurally been doing things. 
Um, and <laughs> even somebody I just read, um, you know, and if it weren't for social media, I would have seen this. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I think there was a, a black dude who had, he had, I think, put on Twitter. He was like, you know, they were talking about LAUSD's budget. Um, and so um, he was saying that, you know, LAUSD should have been defunded because um, I think they had a police officer um, come up to their school and um, there was a situation um, or I don't know if he was like their standing police officer just like on site, but he accidentally shot himself and he lied. Um, and so basically the school was on lockdown for eight hours looking for an unarmed gunman um, when in reality this dude shot himself. So it's just like, once again, justice, no room for error, <laughs> no room for any of that. Um, so yeah, once you, and look, you know, personal testimonies, read these, you know, testimonies online, read these stories and, you know, do the research, look at the numbers and you'll, you'll see why, you know, I don't want there to be another family who has to pay for a funeral, like seriously, like, you yeah. know, you talk about defunding the police, you know, then it's like those funds, you know, they're not giving that to families to like bury their children, you know, or bury their loved one. So you know, if it could be used to prevent another funeral, then that would just save everybody's pockets. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, uh, there was, uh, it came up on the news, uh, I believe it was Seattle, um, is actually, um, you know, there there was things coming up between, um, you know, defending the police, what does that mean? And, and it came up on the news, my, fa um, my family just went up in uproar, like, defund the police like what does that mean what um and i th and i just pulled out my phone and just looked up what like what's the city budget it's, and it's it's as easy as that that you can just look up um you know any city's budget not even your own um and the numbers were phenomenal of how much money goes to the police and how much money goes to other necessary parts of society um basic thing yes and i think uh the seattle uh city council as even now are they're pushing forward an agenda to actually cut the budget the police budget in half so that that money can now be allocated to to other programs which is amazing and so even if you're like me and you're in the, in the la area um i encourage you just just look it up um, because the numbers are really going to surprise you and defunding the police. Um, I try to stay unbiased in these podcasts, but as with this one, un defunding the police won't sound as radical uh, when you look at how much money is actually going um, to yeah. and being allocated to uh, these different uh, institutions in, in society. So. So then how would you respond um, or have you responded uh, to a, a situation in a conversation where uh, someone brings up statistics about, here we go, black on black killings? Um, for example, this past Memorial Day weekend, Chicago experienced one of its deadliest uh, Memorial Day weekends uh, with reports of up to 49 people, um, black people shot. Um, so how how do you respond? How do you navigate the conversation where someone tries uh, to bring up uh, the statistics of black on black killings in response uh, to the death of uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor by by police? Yeah, I think it's incredibly disrespectful. It's incredibly insensitive, um, considering that somebody just lost their life. Somebody just lost a loved one. Um, and somebody comes to, you know, use black on black crime as a way to diverge, you know, from the conversation, um, you know, black on black crime is not a thing. It's just, it's just crime. <laughs> and, you know, nobody says, you know, Asian on Asian crime. Nobody says white on white crime. You know, it's just crime that's happening. Um, and so when people try to use um, crime as a response to police brutality, it really is just a distraction um, from the overall movement and the overall conversation of how we can, you know, educate ourselves and provide solutions. And, you know, when you're educating people about this thing, you know, they always like to talk about black on black crime or, you know, more, 
white people, you know, die from police and all these other types of things. And it's like, well, if you are trying to use that as a way to, I don't know, segue into the conversation, then it's like, okay, well, if you really look at our communities, look at how, you know, disproportionately, you know, targeted we are um, in terms of, you know, you talk about, you know, the FBI admitting to planting drugs, you know, in black and brown neighborhoods, you talk about, you know, us having high levels of poverty because of, once again, systemic racism. So if you want to talk about crime, crime is an effect um, of people not having basic needs. And, you know, um, and that's an overall thing, you know, like just really examine the neighborhoods and look at what they have access to, um, you know, because it's really like people have access to what you give them, you know, and so if they feel like they need to commit a crime in order to get what they need, then you really are just proving the system to be right, you know, um, like you really have to examine that, um, you know, people use, use that um, as an excuse to deter away um, from, you know, the overall conversation, look at poverty, look at homelessness, look at our unemployment rate, um, you know, and I obviously do not condone violence, but when we look at, you know, public figures, um, like Tupac, God rest his soul, birthday just passed, um, or even just activists in general, um, people have commented on the fact of like, you know, I'm gonna do anything to survive. We talk about, you know, basic needs to survive, you know, basic needs of survival. What do we need? And so when you have systemic racism, you have people, you know, not being hired because of what they look like. You have people who are, you know, discriminated against, can't get loans, can't get housing, you know, um, get taxed at higher rates. Um, and when I mean tax, I don't mean literal taxes, but I mean, like, you know, when people submit applications for things and have to pay more, you know, literal systemic racism, when people are discriminated against and they cannot keep up with that level of oppression, you know, <laughs> yeah. you leave them no choice but to fall subject to their circumstances. So when, you know, that happens, you know, say, you know, there's a black person um, and they, you know, fall subject to poverty because they got fired from their job, right? And then they, you know, cool. So now they're unemployed. Um, so now their rent is due. They can't make the rent. So now they're homeless. They get kicked out, they get evicted, they're homeless. And then, you know, say they rob somebody, right? Because they are trying to get money. So then boom, okay, so they rob somebody, they get convicted, they go to jail. Um, they spend time in jail, they come back out, and then the cycle repeats itself. So then they apply for a job, you know, and then they have to read the box, you know, have you been convicted of a felony? They, you know, they debate, should I lie or should I tell the truth? If I lie, it'll increase my chances of being hired. If I tell the truth, then at least I'm honest, but don't know how this is going to work out for me. <laughs> so then, you know, they check the box that, yes, I have been convicted of a felony, so then they submit their application, they get an interview, say they don't get the job, right? Then that leaves them back into, you know, couch surfing or whatever the situation is. So then, you know, time's ticking, they don't have enough money, you know, they're back out onto the street again, and then they commit another crime. It's the same cycle that repeats itself when you live, you give people limited access um, to options. Um, and, you know, that is not specific to, you know, everybody's single um, case or instance, but it is a problem. And you, if you do look at the research and look at the statistics, you will see that that is an issue. Um, and so um, it is unfortunate. Um, but at the same time, we have to look at why is that there's a reason for everything. And also, don't use that argument <laughs> in response to police brutality, because it's highly disrespectful and disregarding the fact that this um, armed, trained person um, just use their privilege and their power to take somebody's life, um, which nobody should have the decision over any other human being to do. Um, so I think that people really need to examine why are they saying that, you know, people talk about, you know, um, there's more white people being killed by police than black people. Like, well, yeah, then you should be upset too. Like, <laughs> police are killing people, bottom line. Like, you should be, you should be mad with this. Like, 
come on, homie, join the protest. Like, you should be upset as well. And like, obviously, because, you know, there's more white people in the country than black people. So of course, there's going to be higher rates of, of um, that's just, you know, statistics, like, of course. Um, but the problem is, we are being killed way like if if it was all equal right and there's a video explaining this if it was all equal equal levels of killing like that would be you know that would be like i think 200 and something percent less than what is happening right now like we are being killed two three times more um which is a literal issue so i think that even if you want to make it even which is still not acceptable like it's not adding up. So you really have to look at like why things are the way that they are um, and don't use, you know, if we're talking about police brutality, let's stay on topic. Um, if we're talking about, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the prison system, crime, things of that sort, go with it. Um, but don't use black on black crime, which is not a real phenomenon to like get into that conversation. Um, it's just really disrespectful and like not productive or hopeful at all. There. Uh, let's uh, step into the, uh, the premise of faith. Uh, man, uh, for, for you, Taji, uh, I know you identify as, as a woman of faith, um, as, as a Christian. Um, and so I'm, I'm just very curious, uh, how, um, does your faith and your beliefs play into this fight for racial justice? Um, and yeah, let's, let's, let's start with that question. There's, there's a lot we can unpack here in this, in this field of faith. So, um, how, how? (laughs) there's so much there. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, have um, really been looking to believers in this time and seeing how we are supposed to be different from the world, right? Um, And like really leading the way um, and just really showing face for God's kingdom. Like that's just what's supposed to be happening. Um, But in terms of me personally, you know, as a woman of faith and struggling with, you know, obviously coming from a Christian background, being raised with um, Christian um, Christian ideals and being raised in Christianity overall, like, you know, going, like, that's how we know each other, going to, you know, a Christian university. Um, so it's just like, you know, that th- there's no separation of justice in the gospel for me. Um, there's like literally no, um, there's no separation. Like God is just, and that's just that on that. Like um, my faith has only fueled um, my efforts in order to, you know, bring about racial justice in my personal sphere of influence. Um, so, you know, I, but I have, you know, struggled with the label of being, you know, a Christian or being, um, yeah, being labeled as a Christian. I have personally struggled with being called a Christian specifically like, Oh, well, you're a Christian because when you think about black people in Christianity, it's like, eh, <laughs> like it's real tough because of, you know, people, you know, using the Bible for their, their own selfish, you know, ways. Um, and, you know, like people um, back in the day and even still now, you know, they go to church and then go to a KKK meeting right after like, people have specifically, you know, white people, um, shaping the face of Christianity has been a huge issue, um, because it just perpetuates white supremacy and the, the fact that like, you know, we are in power and like, you know, you know, we talk about everything, you know, being as white as snow and like, you know, wash my sins away. Like there's so, there's so much language around, you know, whiteness being the, um, the pinnacle of, you know, God's kingdom. So, um, it's, it's a lot, (laughs) it's it's a lot, but, um, yeah, I don't know, man, there's a lot to unpack there with, you know, faith and, you know, today is actually the anniversary of, um, um, the Dylan Roof, um, shooting the, um, the white boy who went into the, or I think, was he 18 at the time? I don't even know. Um, but he, um, white male, um, went into, um, a church, a black church and like prayed with, 
um, prayed with these people, mm-hmm. came in, you know, with the trench coat and just, you know, they were like, no judgment, <laughs> of course, and literally, you know, shot them. Um, and so, and then saying that, you know, I shot them because they, they were black. Um, and so, you know, um, that church was in Charleston. Um, and so, or that was yesterday, June 17th, my fault. Um, so, you know, it just was completely devastating, you know, lives lost lives, nine lives lost. And I think that, you know, and these are black people of faith, right? So believers should be able to, you know, really have their heartstrings pulled on just for that situation alone. Um, and you know, it's just completely disheartening, like seeing the police take him to Burger King afterwards like that. It's just like, you have to try harder to not see right white supremacy and white privilege threaded throughout, you know, the police system and just, you know, white lives in general. Like you really have to try hard to not see it. Um, and so, yeah, it's a lot. There's a lot there with faith and, you know, that. What, what is, what is your opinion on uh, how you've seen the Christian community respond? Uh, your own church, maybe. Do you feel like your church has responded well um, to, to everything that's happening? Is, is there something that they could be doing better? Could they be doing more? Uh, just what are your thoughts um, in terms of that specific area of faith within your church? Yeah, I think that, you know, the church needs to show more righteous anger. Um, I have been, you know, obviously with quarantine being in effect, I haven't been at my home church in Oakland, which is, you know, a, a black church. Um, but I've been, you know, in a lot of online um, services um, with, um, you know, different friends, um, churches, and like, um, even my church from um, back in Azusa, um, which all of my pastors have been black, which is just, that's just how it happened. Even with, you know, multicultural, the multicultural churches, you know, a lot of, you know, black pastors are being criticized right now for talking out on behalf of their own lives, which is completely sickening for, um, you know, their white congregation members to feel um, offended um, that they are saying that their life matters. Um, the person who is teaching you the gospel and guiding you through your faith, um, that is just completely disheartening. Um, so I think overall, I feel like the church needs to, you know, um, definitely be more outspoken about these types of things because you have an incredible platform when you have, you know, um, a few hundred people, um, some mega churches, you know, thousand, you know, people like in your presence, um, to really, you know, and people are going to be upset. People are going to be mad. That's part of the process. Um, but get, feeding them the truth and like telling them who God is. And like, obviously, I think we forget that Jesus um, literally shook tables when people were doing things that they were not supposed to be doing. Um, so I think that, you know, people feel like, you know, to be angry is to not be godly. And I'm like, well, God gets jealous. God gets angry and all types of things. So of course <laughs> we're going to be upset. You know, if your your brother or sister is hurting, you know, the Bible says, you know, your pain is my pain. Like that's just that's just that. And I think that, you know, we we need to um really um undo the damage that has been done with scripture in terms of, you know, a lot of white supremacists using scripture to um really deter away from how we are supposed to be as a community of believers. Like for instance, there was, um, I think it was a white KKK member, um, but um, he was interviewed on the news of some sort. And, you know, the interviewer was like, well, you know, you're, you're a Christian, you're this, you know, um, like, aren't, you know, black people, you know, your neighbor, Um, aren't they like, he was trying to get to the bottom of the conversation. He was like, you know, they're not my neighbor because the Bible said, you know, he was utilizing the Bible to say that my neighbor um, is people who look like me. And I was like, so he only thought that people who are his neighbor are white people. And so I was just like, so if white people are only your neighbors, then what about the people of color who are directly next to you? Um, And like, why would, you know, why would we be here if we're all created in God's image? If we're created in God's image, that means that, you know, God is in the image of a black being like as well as everybody else. So yeah, it's just very astonishing um, that that is 
something that's being said. Um, I think we need to utilize scripture more. Um, you know, I keep coming back to Genesis 4.10, um, which is, you know, the first killing in the Bible, um, Cain killing Abel. And, you know, God says, you know, where's your brother? And, <laughs> and he says, am I my brother's keeper? And he's like, you idiot, you know, like, what have you done? Um, and he says, you know, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, which is like, like your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So if we think about that in present day context, you know, I would be, I, I am a God fearing woman. I would be scared, <laughs> like for me to commit an act of atrocity and think about, you know, how God feels about that. Um, you know, we overuse Micah 6, 8, you know, um, a lot, you know, talking about, you know, what does God ask of you, but to, you know, really just, you know, show, show mercy, love justice, all those things. Um, but it's very much underacted, you know, we really have to take action and, you know, all throughout the Bible, it talks about caring for the oppressed, you know, caring for the widow, caring for people, do not let them, you know, do, do not let them be this way. Do not let them, do not oppress each other, you know, don't plot evil against each other. So it's like, I feel like we just breeze over those verses and we don't pay attention, like, you know, and above all else, love each other, um, you know, and so I think love is obviously the first and foremost thing that is going to drive everything, and I think that's what's going on right now, because it's like, if I love you, I have to make you aware of the things that you don't see, which is a quote from James Baldwin, but, um, you know, if I love you, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, challenge you, because I want you to change, I want you to be the best version of yourself, so, yeah. you know, be, be doers of the word, you know, the Bible also says those who, you know, look at my word and don't do it, you know, it's an issue. So <laughs> really got to put the words into action. Totally. Yeah. Um, so during, during this time, uh, how have you personally been most encouraged or uplifted by a white or non-black person or, or friend? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been getting a lot of text messages and calls, um, which is like, you know, really sweet, you know, direct messages on, on Instagram as well. Um, from a lot of, um, um, specifically, you know, white, um, acquaintances or friends, um, you know, a lot of, um, my, um, friends who are, um, people of color, non-black people of color, they, you know, are on the front lines. They are very much allies in every sense of the word and advocates really, um, you know, educating people, giving space to, to um, black individuals, black organizers, and just, you know, really just giving us the forefront um, to lead the movement and really just, you know, paying attention and, you know, checking their own privilege and continuously telling everybody to check theirs, um, which is, is huge. So I'm very grateful for the company that I hold. I don't take it lightly. It's very important because they're, you know, they're inspiring other people to become, you know, allies and to become advocates. So, um, you know, it has been draining in the sense of like, you know, everybody hitting you up saying, how are you doing, which yeah. is super, um, you know, I've been wrestling with it, you know, it is problematic in a sense that like, you know, oh, I haven't talked to you in like a year, but you know, you're messaging me because, you know, black people are dying, which, you know, if the only time that you talk to a black person is when there's strife or death going on, that's a huge yikes. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, people often ask like, you know, I want to check in, but I don't know. And it's like, sometimes you don't need to check in. Sometimes it's like, you know, do the work and that will, your actions speak louder than your words. So, you know, literally asking people if they're okay or, you know, overloading with, you know, questions or things can be more hurtful than helpful a lot of times. So I think really examining the personal relationship you have with the person um, and really just, you know, it's the same thing when somebody, you know, has a family member pass away. Hey, I'm sending my condolences. I know this is not a great time for you. Um, you know, let me know if you need anything from me specifically. Um, you know, if you don't feel like going out to get groceries, I got you. I'll stop by the house and get you some groceries. Like it's a very, I think, case by case, you know, thing. Um, but I think a lot of people have to examine that for themselves, a personal relationship. Like you don't need to go through your contact list and text every black person in your contact list. It's just not necessary in my opinion. Um, 
but I think that, you know, doing the work is, I think the main thing that every, you know, black person can ask from you right now is just to like do the work and educate yourself and educate the people around you. And, um, you know, really don't do it out of a performative, you know, intention, but really do it because you want to. Um, Cause sometimes staying silent might be better than just like saying whatever, but um, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a lot, but yeah. Definitely, definitely. And I think even one uh, one important uh, holiday that uh, could use way more uh, education um, oh, yeah. and is uh, Juneteenth. And so I think an, even in a question that was in my mind um, was how... Um, have you personally celebrated this holiday in the past and what are some ways um that people like me who who aren't black can appropriately celebrate this day well yeah um you know this is a prime example of like the lack of education and miseducation of our history because i didn't even know the significance of juneteenth um, which is June 19th, 1865, um, until, um, well, wait, sorry, going back. Sorry. Um, yes, I was saying it correctly. I thought I said it wrong. Um, this is a prime example of the miseducation and lack of education in our country because, you know, I didn't even know that June, uh, Juneteenth was a thing until like, I want to say three years ago, um, which Juneteenth is, you know, June 19th, 1865. So when you talk about, you know, the enslaved, um, I'm very uh, weary of calling people slaves when they were enslaved, they were taken, you know, um, taken captive. But when the enslaved were still, you know, suffering, um, specifically talking about the state of Texas and how, you know, people, you know, often glamorize um, the 4th of July and we talk about, you know, Declaration of Independence and, you know, the Civil War, you know, and ending things. Um, and it's like, but, you know, there's a two-year buffer from 1863 to 1865. You know, they didn't free everybody. So it really is a false um, a false narrative of freedom um, because if everybody's not free, then nobody is. Um, and so um, I think when we talk about Juneteenth, we really have to acknowledge what did the, what does this mean? Um, what does it represent? Freeing slaves um, who, you know, were, or freeing the enslaved who were still, you know, in captivity. <laughs> in Texas, like thinking that, you know, when is our time coming? And so when you have this general come over and say, hey, you know, you guys are actually, you know, free to go. This is a huge thing. That is huge. Um, Because you have, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation. um, And, you know, people often give so much credit to Abraham Lincoln, um, when in reality, it did not, you know, free a lot of, you know, the the border states that um, had, you know, um, that owned slaves, um, that owned the enslaved. So you have to really look at that timeline and see how, you know, how much history we have been taught. So I really only found out, I think within the past three years, the, the past two years, I want to say, I really have only been educating people on Instagram, you know, once again, talking about social media activism, I really didn't have, you know, I didn't know of any celebrations in my area. I tried to look up some, I couldn't find any. So, you know, and when you research Juneteenth, it talks about, you know, the dip in the um, celebratory nature of the holiday. Um, But now with everything going on, all of a sudden, everybody knows about Juneteenth, um, which a lot of people knew about it, but didn't really know, you know, or like didn't really celebrate it. So I think in California just last year, um, Governor Newsom signed a state of order acknowledging that Juneteenth is a day of observance um so it is a holiday in that sense but i think that you know once we can get it to be an actual you know um national holiday you know then that that is going to be you know a great move just in a federal sense of like also having it as a paid um holiday 
so that, you know, workers can get paid on their day off um, and black people can rest and have that day to celebrate and really just, you know, reflect on history and reflect on the present. Yeah. Uh, it's very important. So I, I see a lot of, you know, states are moving that way. The New York governor just signed his, um, his uh, proclamation. So theirs will go into effect next year. Um, he signed it to be a paid holiday. So I think once all the states um, move towards that direction, then it's really going to be a huge, huge move. And we're, we're seeing that now. So um, I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, going to be a lot of, um, a lot of barbecuing tomorrow, music, um, you know, socially distancing, of course. Sure. Um, but it's going to be a very necessary time to just be outdoors and hear, you know, different people um, perform. Uh, I know I'm co-hosting an event um, in Oakland um, where we're just going to gather together, you know, spoken word artists, vendors, you know, I'll probably say a few words about everything, um, but it'll be a, an incredible time to acknowledge the significance of the day of June 19th. That's awesome. Taji, thank you so much for everything you shared from your perspective. Um, yes, this, this, uh, a lot of fun, phenomenal content provided in this episode and I'm excited for people to get to hear uh, what you shared um, and just wanted to give you some time as well if, if you have any final thoughts any any words that you would like to like to share with the audience um, please feel feel free yeah I mean really I would just say continue to educate yourself and continue to sign the petitions continue to do the work but most importantly take care of yourself preserve your mental and physical well-being. Um, it's very important to stay healthy. Um, you know, I have been, you know, stressed and have had depressive, you know, orders, uh, depressive episodes in, in the last two weeks. So I think it's very important to take care of yourself and just um, really, you know, make sure that you are not trying to pour from, from an en empty cup um, and just, yeah, really just take care of yourself, but don't, you know, don't lose that fire. Keep up the fight. Um, you know, throw your phone across the room. I know I practice a lot of mindfulness. I don't have my table, uh, or I'm sorry, I don't have my phone at the table when I eat. Um, I leave my phone upstairs, like, you know, just practice mindfulness, be present with, you know, you have to live your life too. Make sure you're doing, you know, your hobbies or your, your work, things that actually need to get done. Um, and still, you know, go back, read that book, you know, go have that conversation with that person, you know, um, and what have you use your social media platform to say something, but definitely try to keep a balance so that, you know, we're here for the long haul and this, you know, this uprising is not by mistake. So we have to be able to sustain this, um, especially till the election time and beyond. Yeah. <laughs> so take care of yourself and, um, yeah, you guys can find me on Instagram at Tajiana underscore. Um, my website is Tajiana.com. Um, and you can also find me, um, the same handle at Tajiana underscore on Twitter as well. So, um, I look forward to having conversations with everybody and yeah, shout out to Josh for having this amazing platform. Mm -hmm. This is wonderful. Thank you, Taji. And everything, um, your, your Twitter and Instagram handle, uh, and website will, will be included, uh, in the description for this episode. So I encourage everyone to head over there. Um, uh, Tajiana also has a, a documentary and, and a trailer for, for a new film as well. And so that will be included. Please watch those. Um, highly encourage you to do so. Um, so Taji, thank you so much uh, for, for giving some uh, of your, uh, what is it today? Thursday? Thursday. Thank you for giving some of your Thursday to, to hop on and uh, share your perspective. Uh, this has been so valuable uh, and, and your, uh, your thoughts are, are very valuable and valued as well. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I'm new to saw, wishing I could take your problems, trade them for a little more time, but you carry you out the bottom. The weight of the world, I got it. Spotted you on my shoulder, the greatest honor to know you. I gotta be.